This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to the show. Ellen Liebeter with you. Today, you'll hear about research going back to basics on chiropractic and... We then found amongst those who use social media, the more they use social media, the more dissatisfied they felt with their body. A little later on, you'll find out how social media changes the way pregnant women view their bodies. But first on the show, where were you born? If you are like 97% of the population, you were probably born in a hospital. For those that remain, you may have been a planned home birth or born on the side of the road before arriving at hospital. Because of the small amount of home births in Australia, it can be difficult to train midwives on how to transfer their skills to the home environment. If you are used to delivering in a hospital, it can be daunting to deliver a baby in somebody else's home. Rebecca Coddington is a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Rebecca has completed a small study looking at how midwives view their transition from hospital to home birth. So the latest uh, data we have on this is from 2013 and Of all the births in Australia, only 0.3% were actually planned to be home births. So that works out at just under 1,000 births in that year. 1,000 births in the whole of Australia. In the whole of Australia. So it's not many. How many home birth programs are there in Australia? Okay, so... In Australia, there's two different ways that women can access home birth. One of them is through the private model where midwives have their own little business and they're called a privately practicing midwife. They're also sometimes referred to as an independent midwife. In that model, women have to kind of seek out and find that midwife themselves and they also fund that care themselves. So out of pocket, it's often about $5,000, but they can sometimes get a rebate. Another model that we have in Australia that's grown in popularity is called the Publicly Funded Home Birth Program. And that's where midwives who are employed in a local maternity hospital are able to offer home birth as an option for low-risk women. There are around 15 operating throughout the country. So that's not a huge amount in terms of if you think about how many maternity hospitals we have and how many women we have out there. So in 2013, there are around 300,000 births in Australia Um, and only 15 places throughout the whole country offering home birth as an option for those women. Is that a case of a midwife in a public hospital goes, hey, I want to do home birth, or is it a case of the hospital saying we're going to offer home birth to women in this area? There's usually a midwife who champions the model, and there may be an obstetrician who comes on board as well, but usually it's a couple of midwives who've either had some previous experience or who are really interested in offering this option to women And they kind of get together and it takes a long time usually to get the programs set up. There are a lot of policies that they have to develop and there's often a lot of people they have to convince higher up the ladder in terms of overseeing obstetric supervisors and that sort of thing who need to approve it. So when a home birth service is established, where are the midwives getting the information from as to how they should perform a home birth? 
Yeah, great question. So there's often champions of the model. So sometimes that's a midwife who's had experience of home birth. Either she's had one herself, she's provided home birth as a private midwife previously. Or what's interesting is that I'm finding a lot of the midwives say that the person who championed the service was someone who was either trained in England, the Netherlands or New Zealand. So these are countries where home birth is much more normal and more part of just the normal options that are available to women. So because it is so rare in Australia, as you can tell from that 0.3% planned home birth rate, not many midwives have had exposure to it. So yes, there's usually someone who has experience and they mentor the other midwives into how to do it. But really, when we're providing care for women at home, it's very much the same as what we do for women in hospital. In fact, it's just the same but a little bit more relaxed. So you're in that home environment, you're in the woman's space, you've still got all the skills, you've still got your bag full of equipment if you need it, but often you don't need it. So it's sort of you know, just a transferring of, of the what you do in hospital but in a more relaxed environment at home. You mentioned that home birth is very different to a hospital birth. Can you put into words that difference? Yeah, so the way an environment is designed influences the way we are in that space. So not only does it influence the woman, it also influences her partner and the midwife as well. So women tend to feel more relaxed at home simply because it's their home. Having said that, not all women feel safe in the home space. So it's not as if we want to have this blanket rule that all women should be at home because some women, in fact, feel safer in hospital where there is all that equipment available and that environment that is a little bit more medical. It also tends to have a really profound impact on partners. So in the hospital, partners often feel a little bit lost. They don't quite know what to do. They need to ask someone, excuse me, where's the bathroom? Excuse me, can I make a cup of tea? Things like that. Whereas in the in the home space, it is their domain. So once the midwife steps into their space, she needs to ask them permission for the bathroom and the cup of tea and all that sort of stuff. And that's a significant shift in power dynamic between the midwife and the woman and the partner. What about the midwives in your study? They spoke about their experience of seeing a home birth. What, what were they saying about it? So this is really beautiful. This is one of my favourite things that's come out of my study is that then midwives talk very explicitly. Often they retold me the first the story of the first birth they ever saw at home in great detail because it's such a significant event for them and some of them even talk about how you know I'd been a midwife for 10 years I'd facilitated over a thousand births and when I saw that home birth it was like nothing I'd ever seen before you know seeing the woman in her own environment in a truly undisturbed physiological state so you know, they talk about how it really opens their eyes to this this new way of, I mean, it's not a new way of giving birth. In fact, it's the oldest way of giving birth. It's the original way. But when so much of our births occur in hospital now, home birth has become the alternative. And so when midwives see it for the first time, they're quite pleasantly surprised usually because they, they talked about how anxious they were before they went into it thinking, do I have the skills I need? Will my midwifery skills transfer into the home environment? What if something happens? Once they see it, they talk about how it was just the most beautiful thing and that they were crying. And one midwife describes how she was so euphoric after that home birth, but then she suddenly was hit with this feeling of resentment because she thought, 
how many women are missing out on this? You know, I've seen so many births and none of them have been as beautiful as this. Because then what happens when the midwife goes back into the hospital? Yeah, well, that's a really interesting thing too, is that what they're telling me is that their practice is changing. So what they see at home and, and the difference they see in the way the woman is at home and the way the midwife behaves at home, they are reassessing their practice and they feel like they're better able to facilitate normal birth in the hospital because they've seen truly normal birth at home. And so they're much more aware of guarding the space, making sure the woman's not interrupted, keeping the noise to a minimum, keeping conversation to a minimum, keeping the lights turned down. And these are things that midwives do tend to do in the hospital environment already, but I think they just become more acutely aware of how powerful that can be for the woman in her process of labour. You briefly mentioned the sort of education phase that these midwives are going through. How formalised is it? So the interesting thing about all these 15 different services across the country are that they are all developed in isolation from one another. So there's no national standard for what a midwife has to do to attend a home birth. So each hospital has their own policy. But most of them that I've spoken to have a very similar system and that's where the midwife has to be credentialed so she needs to have the skills of suturing so that she can repair a tear if a woman tears following birth and all midwives have to be competent in resuscitation of both the woman and the newborn if necessary so they all have to have done all their emergency drills which is a normal part of midwifery training and be accredited for suturing as well and then what they first do is go out with a more experienced midwife and witness at least one, two, three home births. Then they go in as a second midwife. So all of the publicly funded home birth programs send a minimum of two midwives out to a home birth. And that's usually because midwives can discuss if there's any concerns about the way labour's progressing. It's really good to have a colleague to discuss, someone who's there with their own eyes witnessing the same thing. The other thing is that in case of emergency, obviously having two midwives is, you know, two hands. It's like having a pilot and a co-pilot. Exactly, very much so. So you go in as the second midwife and usually there's not much for the second midwife to do because things more often than not go very smoothly. So you are then witnessing again quite a few. uh, It's often five, I think, as the second midwife. And then you go in as the primary midwife, but you always have a second with you. So they're really easing the midwives into it and... You know, some of the midwives have told me that people in their team needed a few more births or if they'd been on holidays or worked in a different model and then come back and they stu- and they felt a bit nervous again, well, they'd just go back and start again with just watching them being the second and then the primary. And some midwives actually never felt comfortable doing it on their own. So, of course, there's no pressure for them to do it. It's really important that the midwife feels comfortable and the midwife feels confident in what she's doing because if she's not, obviously that's going to affect the way she practices and the woman will probably pick up on that as well. Rebecca Coddington, PhD candidate from UTS, talking about midwives transitioning from hospitals to home birth. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app.
remember that story from earlier this year about the chiropractor cracking a baby's back? It wasn't the first time chiropractic has been met with controversy in the media. But how much do you really know, for a fact, about how chiropractors work and what they do? It turns out even the experts aren't so sure, which has started a whole new research project at the University of Technology, Sydney. It's a type of study called a PBRN, or Practice-Based Research Network. This means that instead of setting out to do a complex medical trial with a specialised focus, the trial will collect some general who, what, where and whys from chiropractors themselves. Professor John Adams is the director of the Australian Research Centre in Complementary and Integrative Medicine. He spoke to Nina Copel. One of the problems is when you look at the territory of a or the terrain of a healthcare profession like chiropractic, we know very little, just fundamentally basic questions. We know we know very little about the answer to those questions. And they would be things like, what's the profile of chiropractors that practice? How many of them practice in the bush as opposed to in the city? What type of patients do they tend to treat? What type of interventions, adjustments and treatments do they tend to perform? A lot of this information, very basic workforce information was missing. What we have created here through setting up this network is a database of nearly 1,700 chiropractors across Australia. So that's about 36% of the whole profession is participating and identified on the database. Now, why is that important? That means you have a national sample of chiropractors that you can then recruit for other studies, which are nationally representative of the wider profession in age, on gender and on geographical location. For people, and there are people who criticise chiropractors as under the alternative health umbrella and maybe not as credible as other fields of medicine. Can you convince them that the research that's coming from them or the information that's coming from them in a survey style collection of information is reliable? Yeah, well, let me just put it this way. It's no different to do a PBRN in this case, this design on chiropractic. It's no less or more credible than to do that PBRN on any other health professional. Where they sit in the healthcare system is neither here nor there. What's important is the fact that are these people prevalent and do they treat a lot of patients in the community? Well, we know that chiropractors treat quite a lot of patients over a 12-month period. We know that they are a very popular style of treatment with the Australian general public. If you are in mainstream care and you ignore or say we shouldn't do research on chiropractic, we should shut all this conversation down, you're hardly giving... Uh, good promotion and good intelligence to the people that need that information to make good, effective, safe decisions about people's broader healthcare treatments. So at the beginning of the year, there was that controversy. I don't know if you remember about the baby and the chiropractor cracking his back. And one of the responses came from the, the chiropractic board in Australia saying there should be stricter regulations. Could this type of research help in understanding how people go to use chiropractic and then inform regulation? Um, yes. I mean, what What this research will do for the first time is provide credible statistical insights into what is happening in chiropractic across Australia. And our aim is not just to inform other people interested in chiropractic, it's to inform other stakeholders, including government and legislators and planners and promoters, anyone who's a stakeholder in health services and health use. Now, what we aren't doing to say, here's a golden bullet that will tell you whether chiropractic treatment X either works or doesn't work for patient with condition B. What we will be doing is providing some of that baseline, as I said, descriptive data, 
So people, when they at least talk about chiropractic, are talking about it in a sensitive and sensible way. One of the problems, and not just with chiropractic, but with all of these non-conventional healthcare areas, is that they're highly emotive. And unfortunately, even the academic debate becomes highly emotive. People forget the science of what they're supposed to be talking about, and they become obsessed with either opposing or supporting these medicines. Now, what I think is a far more useful and uh, beneficial approach, which is a middle road. It says, look, let's not be emotive about this. Let's treat this like any other public health or health services research topic. That is the role of ACORN. ACORN doesn't take a political position. It's not, it's not for or against a particular way of providing health care. What it is for is finally describing what really happens in real-life care so people can then make further investigation. You're still putting your data together for this project, but do you know what will come out of it or what should happen next? Yes. So there are a whole train of papers that are currently either published or in process or submitted. By the close of 2016, early 2017, there should be at least eight, nine, possibly even 10 manuscripts written off the baseline data. The next stage is that A whole host of people around the world, including across Australia, have shown not only interest, but have submitted expressions of interest to utilise and recruit from this data set. So I'll give you a little example. We have someone at the moment who's very interested in doing a study. It's been approved and they are recruiting chiropractors to ask them more rich, detailed questions about how they treat and diagnose headaches for example patients that present with headaches what do chiropractors do in practice around that topic it's very surprising but we practically know nothing but we we know from preliminary data that headache patients are well represented in the patients of chiropractors so you can see that this is not just a topic of interest and benefit to chiropractors and their patients. It's also of interest to everyone else in multidisciplinary teams who may be treating people with headaches. The other thing to say is that you don't have to just ask questions of practitioners, of chiropractors. You can obviously get chiropractors, and this is the beauty of a PBRN, you can get chiropractors to to then recruit and follow patients through time in real-life practice. What are the benefits for these patients of receiving a particular form of treatment over time on a particular condition? So there's quite a lot of different style of research. You can do qualitative research and find out through focus groups and interviews and things like that. Other, you can ask other types of research questions of both practitioners and patients. So the thing to really stress here is this is not a finite project that started, will finish within just two or three years. You publish all the results and then you move on and everyone thinks about another topic. This is about creating some sustainability, some growth and some a change in research culture and critical mass in chiropractic. And not just in Australia, but as I mentioned, we have people from overseas who are very senior, well-known methodologists around health research who have shown an interest in equally collaborating and asking other research questions using this data set. Professor John Adams from the Australian Research Centre in Complementary and Integrative Medicine talking with Nina Kopel. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. You are halfway through your pregnancy and it's meant to be one of the happiest times in your life. Yet every time you log into Facebook, you can't help but compare yourself to your friends who are also pregnant. Have you put on too much weight? 
Does your bump look too big in this dress? Well, you're not alone. A study from the United Kingdom found over half of pregnant women surveyed have concerns about their body image during pregnancy. With those concerns more apparent, the more you use Facebook. Dr Amy Brown was one of the authors of the study. She is an associate professor in child and public health at Swansea University in the UK. Well, we had this idea that we wanted to look at their body image and then how much they used social media. And we wanted to look at whether their social media use then affected their body image. So we did this more subtly and then quite directly. So we asked lots of questions about how they felt about their body during pregnancy. So it was typical things like whether they were worried they put on too much weight, but things that were related just to pregnancy. So things like stretch marks or the changing shape of their breasts or how worried they were about what their body would look like after pregnancy, including whether they worried about what their partner thought of their changing shape and things like that. And then we asked them how much they use social media. The women in your study, they were using Facebook and comparing themselves to celebrities and uh, their friends. How did that make them feel? What were the results on that? Well, there were several stages to the research. So firstly, we looked at the body image of women who didn't use social media at all compared to those who did. And we found that those who didn't use social media had far better body image than anybody who used social media at all. We then found amongst those who use social media, the more they use social media, the more dissatisfied they felt with their body. But then we directly asked them, does social media impact on how you feel about your body? And they were saying yes. They were saying that they were comparing their bodies to celebrities and their friends and they couldn't help doing it, that they'd see photos that their pregnant friends had put up or they'd seen photos that celebrities would post in selfies or um, very carefully designed photos. And they were comparing their pregnant body with these very stylized pictures. And, and one of the key things to remember is that most things on social media are a very carefully selected, airbrushed version of the best things that we do in our life. If a friend or a celebrity has put up a picture of her pregnant bump, I would probably bet quite a lot of money that she's probably taken about 30 photos and selected the very best one. I, th I think I, I was reading the research and I actually found it quite interesting that the first set of questions you were asking about body image, there wasn't a whole lot of you know body love going on there. There isn't at all. And I, I think almost when you then take into account all the media stuff and the celebrity stuff, if you open a magazine or you go on social media, there are all these stories about pregnant celebrities and it's never, oh, look, she's put on a healthy amount of weight. Doesn't she look lovely? Or she doesn't look pregnant from behind um, because that matters. Um, it, it seems like we very much don't want our bodies to change anymore when they're pregnant, even though we're growing an entire new person in there and there are going to be changes. But I, I think half the issue then with a lot of those celebrity photos is they all end up getting airbrushed 
it kind of plays into this idea of what exactly is a perfect bump. Mm, very, very much so. And a, a perfect bump is a, a sort of very round, very perfect one that's very hard and doesn't have any fat on it. And um, it's just all about the bump. Um, you're not allowed to change in any other way in the rest of your body, which just is pretty physically impossible for most women. Because you're meant to put on a a healthy amount of weight during pregnancy. And part of that is laying down fat stores for once the baby is born because our bodies naturally expect us to breastfeed. So we put on fat during pregnancy in order to have the stores to be able to give that baby all the energy after the birth. I just kind of find on the one hand we have or here in Australia at the very least a taboo in talking about weight gain in pregnancy because we don't want to offend women but at the same time we do also have all that social media pressure still. I think we have exactly the same here and it's something that we really don't like to talk to pregnant women about because it's a very difficult conversation isn't it to say that we don't want you to put on any more weight because your baby might be an increased risk of all these different things. That's, that's not a nice conversation to have. But at the same time, I think we need to be aware of how women are feeling about their body during pregnancy because if things are changing and if things are going in the opposite direction, then it's certainly something that midwives need to be aware of, that perhaps some women are really being affected by different media pressures to the point that they're not really putting on enough weight and not eating healthily. And what about women's bodies after pregnancy? How did the females in your survey feel about that? They were very, very worried about it, and that was the biggest concern they had, that they were worried about their body during pregnancy, but it was hugely as a consequence of what would happen after the baby had been born. It was like they were worried about their pregnant body, but they had an excuse that they were pregnant, so it wasn't um, such an immediate problem then of what would then happen after pregnancy. Uh, whether they would have stretch marks, whether their partner would still find them attractive. And those were the the highest concerns in the whole study, what was going to happen to me. And we know that then has a a knock-on effect. We've done some other research here that shows then the women who really are worried about their body image during pregnancy are less likely to want to breastfeed. Amy, you've certainly raised a lot of societal issues that we need to deal with, with weight gain in pregnancy. What do you think is the best way forward to support women during pregnancy? It's a bigger issue in that we need to support and value women more generally during pregnancy and those months after having their baby in that we don't value pregnancy and women and the fact that we're creating whole new little human beings as much as we should do and we put all these pressures on them and I'm sure that if if men could have babies then there certainly wouldn't be all this pressure on them uh, uh, to keep a certain size I think they'd really be comparing how big they could make their bump but I think there's there's the issue as well that we just need to kind of emphasize healthy eating healthy weight gain explain why some weight gain is needed but also kind of discourage women from that eating for two. It's about finding the balance again, I think. Dr Amy Brown from Swansea University in the UK.
you would like to find out more about that story or anything else you've heard today, head to 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. If you've enjoyed today's show, make sure you subscribe so you won't miss a moment. And if today's show has raised any questions with you, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. I'm Ellen Lee Beter. Thanks for your company.